Please join me in prayer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts always be acceptable to you. For you are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. I once knew a friend that refused to say goodbye. You ever run into somebody like that? They refused to say goodbye. They'd say, till later, or we'll meet again, or see ya, but they wouldn't say goodbye. I'm not sure why in this person's case, but perhaps it's because saying goodbye can be very difficult, particularly if it's a member of your family or someone whose company you really like, a good friend perhaps. Um, you just can't get enough of that person. And you just don't want that time to end. Can you imagine how the disciples must have felt with Jesus? Jesus had told them that he was indeed going to say goodbye, that he would be returning to the Father. And last week, if you remember, in John chapter 14, Jesus tells the disciples that while he's going to leave them, He's not going to leave them as orphans, right? Remember John 14, verse 26 through 29, where he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Then he continues, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You have heard me say to you that I am going away, and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. Jesus tells his apostles the very opposite of what we'd expect when saying goodbye. He says, rather than mourning, if you really love me, you rejoice at my saying goodbye. You rejoice at the fact that I'm going to the Father, not because he's leaving, but because of the results of what happens when he leaves. That going to the Father, he can go and do something different and send his Holy Spirit to be present to all people in all places all over the world. To not be confined to the physical body in a geographic region here on earth. Today we celebrate the ascension. Jesus being bodily raised up into heaven. And we hold that as one of the critical parts of the Christian faith, along with the apostles, Nicene, and other creeds. Right? We believe that Jesus truly ascended physically into the heavens and sits at the right hand of the Father. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom shall have no end. Right? But I think sometimes this is one of those festivals, one of those feasts in the church that we overlook or we miss, or, or maybe we, we are a little ashamed of because we don't really understand what's going on. How can that be? How can a person 
in a body be up there at God's right hand in the heavens? We can't answer that question. It's a mystical thing. But we know that in Jesus, it's true. And we know because of God's word that it's a promise that he gives to us. It's an actual reality, not just a theological reality. Jesus does three things before he ascends that I want to look at today. He teaches, he shows them that they are to look to him in all things. Secondly, he commissions them. He commissions the apostles as witnesses of repentance and forgiveness. Thirdly, he blesses them. As he ascends, he blesses them, and that blessing goes on and on. So if you have your Bibles with you, open with me to Luke chapter 24. We're going to look at this briefly this morning in the text. Luke chapter 24. It's in your inserts if you don't have your Bible with you. Look at chapter 24. I'm sorry, yeah, chapter 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. A conservative or limited reading of the Old Testament prophecies shows around 50 references to Jesus as the Messiah. And don't miss that, because here Jesus once again reiterates that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of the prophecies. Just off the cuff, we see and probably know by heart as Christians the following. Isaiah 53, 3-5 through he, that is Jesus, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. Psalm 22, which Christ, of course, quotes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he's on the cross. Zechariah chapter three, verse three, or verse four. The prophet talks about the filthy priests being made clean, a filthy people being made acceptable. This teaching is the first thing that Jesus leaves with his disciples. Don't miss that. The last thing that he does with them here on this earth, one of those things is to point back to the Old Testament. You know, there's some preachers out there and Christians that think the Old Testament's not important, won't preach from it, won't look at it, won't let it look won't let it inform their lives. That, that's a, an error, a huge error, and one that Jesus would completely disagree with. He says that he's fulfilled the law and the prophets, not abolished them. What else? Well, this teaching is the first thing, is the last thing, rather, that Jesus leaves with his disciples, and it is the essence of Christianity that is, the essence of Christianity is Christ. 
kind of seems like a basic fact, but a lot of people seem to miss it. The essence of Christianity is not some ethic, but Christ himself embodying the will of God. Bishop Fulton Sheen says it this way. He says, as on the Mount of the Beatitudes, Jesus reaffirmed that there is no doctrine apart from his person. One could no more choose to believe his words about lilies and disbelieve his words about hell than to believe in his body and not his blood. With this affirmation that Christianity is Christ, he prepared to ascend to his Father. So Christianity is Christ, is the living word, is the word in its entirety, both revealed to us in scriptures and in the person of Christ. In short, according to Jesus, he is Christianity, and to be a Christian is to be found in him. If you want to learn more about Jesus, turn to the scriptures. Turn to the early traditions of the church that the apostles who saw Jesus in the flesh record for us. They're not hidden. In today's day and age, they're all over the place. On the internet, you can Google the church fathers. In addition to the scriptures, you can, you can, you can pull up Bible Gateway if you don't have your Bible on you. Anywhere. Secondly, Jesus commissions, in addition to teaching his apostles, he commissions them to be witnesses to do what? To bear the message of forgiveness and repentance. Again, look with me at the gospel passage, Luke 24. This time, look with me at 46 through 48. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. What are you witnesses of? That the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. A truth about the person, Christ. But, verse 47, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You know, people get confused as to what the gospel is. Sometimes it's good-natured. People want to make it approachable or want to make it inviting. But ultimately, what is the gospel? The person of Christ who calls us to repentance, which is a hard thing, who calls us to repentance, but promises the forgiveness of sins if we repent, just see. So Jesus is saying, as apostles, as one sent, you are what my witnesses, both to what I said and did and what you are to do and say. Let's continue. Jesus ties together his suffering and death and resurrection to that repentance and forgiveness. And as we continue to look here, we see that we're at the end of Luke's gospel. But if we look at the very beginning of Luke's gospel, we see yet another thing. Those of you that are graduating or have just finished your uh, PhD dissertation or a thesis, 
what is a thesis at the beginning of a book or a long paper or a term paper? Why do you have a thesis at the beginning? What's the purpose? Partly it's a synopsis, yeah? What else? A theory or something you're testing, right? What is Luke's thesis at the beginning of Luke's gospel, turning way back to Luke chapter 1, verse 2? Luke chapter 1, verse 2. What's he say? Yeah, it's his eyewitness account. Inasmuch, this is verse one, as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, verse two, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all times closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Theophilus, Theophilus is a Greek word that means God lover. But it might, have, might actually be a person too. Scholars aren't quite sure. But either way, what's Luke saying? Oh God lover, oh Christian, oh lover of God, I'm writing these things to you so that you can know these things with certainty. What does it mean to be a witness that you might be a witness. Because in the apostles, in the ascension story rather, Jesus doesn't just reflect on the fact that the apostles are his witnesses. He calls them to be witnesses to the world and calls us to be witnesses to the world too. Jesus says that he's sending the promise of his father upon them. You are witnesses of these things. Verse 49 in Luke 24, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Jesus says he's sending the promise of the Father upon them. And therefore, if we are following upon us, we're not just to guard the faith, we're not just to hold the faith, but we're to proclaim the faith wherever we go. Proclaim the reality of Jesus Christ. Proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins. And do it winsomely. Finally, he blesses them as a priest as he ascends. Look with me at verse 50. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Jesus ascends as he blesses them after telling them and calling them, teaching them rather, and calling them to be witnesses. But he also tells them to wait, doesn't he? Don't go off and try to do this on your own. Because remember, I'm not leaving you as orphans. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and will empower you to do these things, right? That's crucial. That's crucial. 
Where does Jesus go? Where does he ascend to? Well, to the right hand of the Father. Hebrews 9, 11 tells us that as he leaves, he enters in to the great, as the great high priest. Right? So let me just read a section from Hebrews 9, 11 to you. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with human hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all to the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What's the author of Hebrews saying here? That Jesus ascends from the earth to go to the high places, to go to the holy places, to do what? To be our representative, to be our priest, to stand in place of us, right? To see what's going on theologically here, Jesus is putting himself in our place so that we can be before God the Father. And so we can have this close relationship with God the Father, even though we sin, do you see? And we see why repentance and forgiveness is tied together with this. Because in Christ Jesus, we're given that opportunity. Jesus doesn't just descend and kind of look down from on high and do nothing the rest of the time, right? He hasn't left us as orphans. He goes to do something very important to intercede for us, St. Paul says in Romans 8.34, to be our high priest before the Father. And guess what? In verse 50, it says that he ascends blessing us. Do you think that that blessing stops just because he disappears from our eyes? Do you think that blessing goes away just because we can't see it? Absolutely not. Jesus is both interceding and continually blessing us from on high, from the holy places, from the right hand of the Father. And he sends the Holy Spirit to be with us, to be with us. I think if you're like me, part of us wishes that Jesus were bodily present right here and right now. It'd be really nice to be able to just have a cup of coffee with him, right? or to sit around a campfire with him and ask any number of questions. It'd also be really intimidating, I think, if we're honest. But Jesus has something better in mind. Next week, we'll celebrate Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit. The promise of the third person of the Trinity, Jesus says here, sent from the Father to dwell within us within us. And so, in a sense, we get the best, quite literally, of both worlds. The best of Jesus in that other world, that most holy of places, interceding with the Father and blessing us. And the best in our world of Jesus in the Holy Spirit as part of the Trinity, being in us, encouraging us, 
empowering us, giving us the ability to be his witnesses and to live the life in him. The apostles, of course, couldn't understand quite what was going on there, and so they were a bit apprehensive. But Jesus knew with certainty the plan of the Father, and so he ascends, and he ascends in victory for himself and for you and I as sons and daughters. Today is the final day of Easter, the Easter season. Jesus was raised from the dead, appears multiple times, and today we celebrate his rising again to be the pleading and blessing high priest, but also to be the king. We know that one day he shall return to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Oh, that we would see that as the reality. Oh, that we would take that to heart. Oh, that we would see that this world is not our home. We're in it. We're part of it. We're to be witnesses to it. But it too shall be redeemed in his kingdom, which will have no end. The victory is won. And yet, the victory is still playing out. It's what theologians call the already but not yet. Christ has won the battle. But we still deal with some of the fallout of sin. It's said that uh, Emperor Julian in 363 AD, he was an emperor that tried to stamp out Christianity and uh, tried to revert, take Rome, the Roman Empire, back to the pagan religions. It's said that on his deathbed, as the church continued to rise and status, he cried out, you have won, O Galilean. You have won, O Galilean. He's right. Indeed, Jesus has won. So, when we think of this ascension, when we think of this goodbye, realize that it's a goodbye for our betterment, with a promise that he'll come again. And one other thing, goodbye is actually a blessing. Did you know that? Goodbye is actually a blessing. Why? It comes from the old English, God be with ye. It's a contraction of God be with ye. So every time you say goodbye, you're blessing somebody. God bids us to remember that God is with us. The Holy Spirit has come, and he will one day bodily come again as King Jesus Christ. Amen.